we are recording. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. I'm Eric Nemchuk, alongside my co-host, Stephen Trinkwald. Stephen, the 2020 WNBA season is over. The Seattle Storm have won the 2020 championship, sweeping away the Las Vegas Aces. No more WNBA basketball for a long time. Yeah, season's done. It came and went in a flash. Enjoyed it while I was here, and I think we should maybe take a step back and, and talk about some the 2020 season maybe as a whole and sort of what we thought about the bubble experience and, and this season that kind of, you know, the narrative was how many stars it was missing. But we, we got a season out of it, and overall, we'll, we'll get to this uh, later. But I, I think it was a very positive experience, at least for me. I agree. Me too. So yeah, well, like, like Steven said, what we're going to be doing here, we're just going to be taking a step back and, and looking at things. Like Steven said, it was a, a quick season, obviously a 22-game condensed schedule, normal playoff format, but even so, it just kind of flew by. So before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of each team, you know, team recaps, player recaps, we're just going to take a little chit-chat. So first of all, uh, our overall impressions on the bubble, you know, for example, presentation, level of play, what went well, what could have gone better. Uh, Steven, what was the first thing that came to your mind here? I mean, for me, when you had kind of laid out these bullet points of like presentation level play, the things that you had just mentioned, the first thing that came to mind was the presentation, which I thought just in terms of like how, like the aesthetic of how WNBA games looked on television this year, I thought it was really good. You know, you and I are both NBA fans as well as WNBA fans. And the NBA did this virtual fan thing with, with yeah. I was not a big fan of that. And, you know, I had probably watched, you know, three or four weeks of WNBA games before like tuning into my first NBA bubble game and was taken a little bit aback when I kind of uh, watched my first NBA bubble game and sort of like the presentation that they had going on. And just in terms of like, you know, the black backdrop with, with the team logos and how, how everything sort of looked from a, a television production standpoint, like I thought it was a home run, to be honest with you. What about you? Yeah, it was very aesthetically pleasing. There are some, uh, how do I say this? Pertaining to the NBA bubble, I think the virtual crowds and the fake crowd noise is really, really cheesy. Like, that's, that's just my opinion. Like, I know other people think it, it adds to the experience. I think that the way the, the WNBA did it, it was very organic. You know, you, you felt like you heard the players and the coaches talking. I, I thought that it really, it really brought the product into my home. You know, it was, like I said, it was very organic. And the presentation has always been different for the WNBA games compared to NBA games, maybe for better, maybe for worse. But I believe that this, at this remote location in Bradenton, Florida, it was a home run. I agree. The the black backdrop, it looked, it was minimalist enough so that you weren't being distracted by random faces being digitally projected, like out of, the, out of these big screens. Um, like the ads weren't intrusive or anything like that. It was just professional basketball. You know, and uh, yeah, I think it was, it looked much better than the NBA and the virtual fans and all that stuff. So, yeah. So how well, about one other, the, uh, one other thing that you had mentioned that I, I want to hit on before we kind of sure. move on was just um, how much of like the on-court experience we were able to hear. Um, and that's something that we touched on a little bit uh, way back when we did our 2009 finals game one show, where they really kind of brought you into the huddle for mm-hmm. X's and O's look-ins like very frequently. And this season was, I feel like a lot more of that stuff, just because you could hear things so much better without the fan noise. And, you know, obviously like you having an empty gym with just players, coaches, officials, and, and the staff working the game. So that overall was a positive for me as well. It was cool. I mean, it really felt like I was, I mean, it didn't really feel like I was there because I obviously wasn't, but this was the next best thing. 
in terms of the the next thing you kind of wanted to talk about it, if you're ready to move on was just yeah. the level of play and obviously this was a season that was missing a ton of big name players uh, and we, we don't have to go through the list but obviously this was kind of not the WNBA that a lot of folks were used to but this in terms of just like the basketball that we saw on the court it was pretty much as good as you could have expected like it was good to see a more offensive environment you know last year was a bit of a struggle in terms of offense and you know there was no I thought dip in quality in terms of just how the game was played did you feel differently no I didn't feel differently uh, unless you're talking about the New York Liberty and then that was a pretty big dip in quality but um yeah, no, it, the, the basketball, I actually had the exact same thing in my notes. Uh, it was about as good as you could have expected, maybe even better. Considering, let's see, stars missing for one reason or another. I mean, I, once again, I, I want to preface this by saying, for all the players who chose to sit out, totally understandable. Supported it 1,000%. But given that a lot, of, a lot of players were sitting out, left teams with short rosters, it was hard to get replacement players in the bubble to either replace those players or players who got injured later in the season. Really no preseason to speak of. I mean, there are like scrimmages down there in the bubble, but it was not an ideal environment by any stretch of the imagination. But it really felt to me like teams started to pick things up pretty quickly, maybe by like week three or week four, except for the Washington Mystics who seemed to be like way ahead of the pack in the first couple of weeks and then really tailed off at the end there. I mean, all things considered, I thought it was the play was very professional. Yeah, I guess uh, one thing you had mentioned that I forgot to take into consideration was just how difficult it was to get players who were not already in the bubble to team rosters. And, you know, there were a few instances where teams were really, really playing on very limited uh, benches. You know, Phoenix comes to mind when they had a couple games with, with eight or nine active players. But other than that, you know, it was a, a great season of WNBA basketball, for sure. How about the schedule? Because we had 22 games and it was very condensed. Like most of the games were being played back to back. Like there weren't really travel limitations because everyone was in the, in the same location more or less. But what do you think about that? I mean, I think early on you could really see some, some fatigue mounting from playing every other day, but I think on the whole, like playing everybody in one location, playing every other day, you know, just from like a performance standpoint, that might be better than the normal WNBA playing conditions where teams are, still usually playing three games a week, two to three games a week, but they are flying commercial from location to location. And, sure. you know, there are a few locations, you know, Connecticut, New York, Washington, that are kind of close to each other, but even Connecticut, you know, you're flying to like Boston or to New York and then taking like a two hour bus ride or, or whatever it may be. So I think just in terms of, you know, playing every other day, like that's definitely physically grueling, but not having that tough travel schedule I think over the long haul like really did except for you know the instances where people were getting hurt and, and teams were unable to replace those players you know I think the schedule it could have been handled better uh in terms of like you know when each team is playing every other team twice it seems like and no one has to really travel you don't have to worry about stadium accommodations like it seems like it would have been a pretty easy thing to do for everyone to play each other like once in the first half of the season and once in the second half of the season just from like a competitive like fairness standpoint in case you know you're catching one team who's missing a player in like a three-game stretch and you're playing them twice or something in that stretch so I think that would would have been a pretty easy thing to fix and maybe there are reasons that I'm not considering where that couldn't happen but other than that you know I think the schedule was, was pretty fine two games pretty much every night more than that on the weekends and I think that worked out well we didn't get even the players didn't get a break we didn't get a break as viewers, I mean, there were games every day, all day. It was, it was pretty cool, to be honest. But like going back to your point about teams playing each other 
you know, close together. Uh, your Connecticut Sun, they played the Lynx like first game and third game or something like that. And they picked up two close losses against a team that was just better than them at the point at that point. And then you also mentioned the fatigue. It's interesting because it seemed like a lot of teams were fatigued early, but then got their legs underneath them as the season went on. So like not everyone really came in on a level playing field, which is pretty interesting. But I mean, again, given the lack of a training camp and no preseason, everyone was kind of coming from, from different points. Right. Sure. Uh, were, were there any other things that I guess like could have gone better or could have been just like improved in terms of, uh, preparation or, or anything along the lines in terms of like how the WNBA or particular teams could have handled something? Uh, you know, I, I think it went, the one thing that I think we need to keep in mind, the, the big picture here is that no one got sick. No one got COVID. I mean, there were a couple of inconclusive tests, which they didn't really explain what that meant, but no one got sick as far as I know. And that was something, and before the season started, I was against this, having a season. I said, it was, I thought it was too risky. I thought, you know, it wouldn't be worth it, especially like in Florida where COVID hasn't really been handled all that well. But the WNBA and the Players Union obviously worked really, really hard under extreme amounts of pressure. Like this had to be a last second thing to, to get all this scheduled and, and hashed out. And they had a successful season and none of the players got sick. None of the coaches got sick or I don't think so. We didn't hear about it. Nobody got sick as, as far as I know. So that's, that's the ultimate win for me. Also a kind of a lesser point here, but something that I want to at least throw out there, WNBA league pass was pretty darn good this season. League yeah, pass I agree was pretty good. It was yeah, pretty good. I, I had much, much fewer in, you know, in fairness, um, there are less games on league pass. So there's less opportunities to, to get okay, kicked right. off multiple <laughs> times per, per okay. game. But yeah. You know, it didn't really seem like too many games were, were even on League Pass. You know, obviously there were, you know, maybe one or so each night with CBS and, and ESPN getting so many games. But I agree with you. Um, maybe that was just an instance of all the kind of technical equipment being in one spot and not having to travel so much as well. But yeah, I, I think League Pass overall was much better than in previous years. Yeah, because in previous years, the League Pass has been the butt of a lot of jokes on WNBA Twitter. It was, it's kind of been a running joke, like, oh, game hasn't started yet, even though it started a half hour ago, or, oh, League Pass logged me out again, even though I didn't even do anything. You're right in that a lot of games are blacked out because the WNBA still thinks CBS Sports Network should be considered national TV for some reason. That's another discussion for another day. But, um, I mean, they upgraded the interface, like, on, on if you're accessing on PC. So you can now use it on Chromecast. You can go all the way back and watch games in previous seasons. I think that's really cool. And it seemed like they were getting, getting the games up and, and getting the stats up in a very quick manner. I, the, there are only a few instances of like technical difficulties where, you know, the screen is missing for a few minutes or the score is missing for a few minutes. I expected a lot worse considering that the technology, like they weren't able to bring in all their crews or what have you. But like you said, maybe it was better to have it all in one place. So there was less going on. Like, I, I don't know. I'm not a technology person. Um, I'm pretty useless with this stuff in, in the big picture, but League Pass was a pleasant surprise. So shout out to whoever was in charge of that. Sure. And, you know, one other thing that I enjoyed about um, WNBA bubble basketball and, you know, who knows how the people intimately involved in this feel about it. Maybe they, they did not care for it, but being able to get the, the Ruko Lobo double headers where you don't have to kind of bring in a second team because you're in a different location and they can call back-to-back -back ESPN games. Uh, I thought that was great. Let's talk about that. So the broadcasters were all remote. That's got to be difficult for them especially because they're not in an environment where, you know, like 
and once again, I don't know the ins and outs of this. Maybe it still happened, but it, it didn't seem like, you know, statisticians were handing them as much information as, as usual. Usually when they're at games, there's somebody, you know, sitting next to them, feeding them information, feeding them numbers. So, hey, we'll bring, bring up this topic on the next, after the next commercial break or whatever. Uh, it seemed like ESPN broadcasters handled it pretty well. Uh, they went about it very professionally. And the doubleheaders, as you said, were, were pretty cool. We got Ryan Rucco and Rebecca Lobo for two games straight. I mean, that's got to be tough, right? You know, doing, calling two straight games from a remote location, but it wasn't bad. Yeah, I imagine it was very exhausting for, for the people involved. Not just, you know, the, the actual broadcasters themselves, but the, the technical crew, the people who are off camera. Uh, I'm sure it was, was a lot of work for them, but hopefully it wasn't too arduous, and, and I definitely enjoyed it selfishly. It was pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good. Um, one thing that I really enjoyed about the WNBA season, and I, we, we need to mention this, the commitment to social justice league-wide. Uh, everyone had Breonna Taylor on the back of their jerseys. Uh, following the shooting of Jacob Blake, they postponed the games in order to make a league-wide statement. The Mystics had very powerful imagery on it. You know, they wore t-shirts with bullet holes in the back. I mean, that's, that's raw stuff, but it, it really got the message across. And, you know, sure. the, the day after when they had uh, when the entire league lined up for that iconic photo of, you know, they wore t-shirts saying arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor. Every single one, every single player was wearing them along with wearing masks. This is a group of women who are strong, they're intelligent, they're forward thinking, and they're leaders. You know, like I've always been proud to be a WNBA fan as far as, you know, one for supporting a league that is about what is good in this world, in my I believe, and also for, you know, just being really good basketball. But Never have I been prouder to be a WNBA fan than when the entire league stood together like that. You know, I feel like a lot of other leagues, you know, like the NBA, NFL, MLS, MLB, whatever, they're all taking like small steps, but they're still kind of in the shallow end of the pool, if you will. The WNBA has always been at the forefront of bringing social justice to sports. They're not afraid of, you know, losing sponsors or losing fans or whatever, because they're doing, the players are doing what they believe is right. And that deserves a tremendous amount of respect. And yeah, it just made me really proud to be a WNBA fan. I, would you agree with all that? For sure. And a couple other uh, instances that, that I want to touch on, you know, all the players league-wide wearing the Vote Warnock shirts in Raphael Warnock's campaign against uh, Kelly Loeffler, yeah. you know, running down the shot clock, uh, the first possession of each quarter to bring awareness in terms of completing the census you know even the tv broadcasts which we probably would have fairly thought would be a little bit more apolitical they were bringing up uh making sure that you get out and vote and stuff like that and obviously just saying get out and vote is kind of a a broad neutral statement but um not necessarily when there's you know one particular party in this country that doesn't want people to vote and wants to make that as difficult as possible for you so um, really, really awesome stuff from, from a league that's been ahead of their peers in this for a while. And I, and I think also in relation to that, what you just said, the WNBA did, is finally starting to get its flowers regarding being ahead of the pack. You've seen many, many male professional athletes say, hey, support the WNBA because they've been at this a lot longer than we have. They were the ones who, who, who've kind of started this. They're the ones who are leading the way. And that's just really dope stuff. Anything that you maybe did not enjoy about the season that I know that was something you, you've at least thought about touching on. I'm not sure if you have any specific examples. Yeah, I've got a couple of specific examples. Um, you know, sometimes on this uh, pod, I feel like some people think we're too critical. Uh, so that's why I started with, you know, what do we enjoy the most? And now we got to do the other end. Um, so regarding the broadcasts, the ESPN ones, I thought were pretty good. The CBS sports network ones left a little bit to be desired specifically 
when the broadcasters continued to call players by the wrong names or mispronouncing their names, mixing them up, or just clearly not knowing who the players' names are. To me, that's like, I might be being too harsh here because it's, it's more difficult to do this remotely and it's a tougher job than it might seem already. But I mean, come on, you literally have one job, right? I don't know. It just seems really unprofessional to me. It's, it's kind of, it's almost insulting. Like maybe I'm taking it too seriously, but when, when people are, continue to mix up players' names or call them by the wrong names or mispronounce them. It just doesn't reflect well upon the league, you know? Sure. And I think I'm maybe a little bit more sensitive to this particular type of error just because, you know, calling a Lee a, a game live, you know, it is very difficult. It's very easy when you're tough, yeah. when you're talking for, for several hours at a time. Like you and I have the opportunity to go back and edit what we're saying. Uh, and I misspeak all the time. We still mess up people's yeah, names, so, right? <laughs> but when you are kind of repeatedly doing it over the course of a, one particular game, you're, you're saying the wrong name several times or, or over the course of, you know, the season when you're kind of calling the same teams pretty frequently, it can definitely be frustrating. And I, I certainly know uh, where you're coming from. And, um, you know, for me, just from like a broadcast standpoint, would love to just see these teams get a little bit more, kind of modern with with the statistical analysis they use and yeah. you know team team points per game is not really telling any kind of story we'd love to just see that sort of erased from WNBA vernacular altogether but definitely I hear what you're saying like it definitely is frustrating when you know there's a reputation of particular broadcasters having this problem and and they're still kind of making the same mistakes over and over again especially when they are team employees like you would think they'd have like a pronunciation guide, right? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm asking for too much here, but and also regarding the statistics on the broadcasts, this made me think of an example a couple of years ago because when WMA.com overhauled their stats page, I felt like there was some push to get some of these metrics on the broadcast. I think it was an Aces versus Fever game. I'm not sure, but I think those those are the two teams. They cited pace. They're saying, oh, look, the Aces play really fast. The Fever play really slow. I'm like, yeah. Like, I was cheering from my couch. Like, yeah, advanced stats. And then they said, oh, and look, the Aces are scoring more points per game. And then I was like, no. Like, why, why do you go from pace to points per game? It's totally, it's totally counterproductive. But, yeah, I agree with you on that. And that's something I didn't think of. But, um, yeah, you know, in, regarding the, the NBA, do NBA broadcasts, are they pretty much fully – leaned into the advanced stats now or are they, are they still kind of no i mean you'll definitely still get a lot of them that are using these same kind of more outdated uh metrics in terms of okay you know just kind of like raw field goal percentage and, and team points per game and, and stuff like that and not necessarily i feel like they the nba might be better at like blending them where we're kind of like what you're saying but to a more like even more of a degree where there's a little bit something for people who kind of want like a, a true statistical story being told and then something for the people who, you know, think offensive rating or something is for dorks or, or whatever. So, so okay. should we move on to, was there anything else that you kind of wanted to talk about just from like a, a what could have been improved on from, from this season, or should we talk about some, some teams and some players that with regards to our expectations, I should say. Uh, you know, I might be missing a couple things, but it, once again, going back to the big picture, I don't think we can complain about much. Um, so yeah, let's 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 go to our expectations. Um, we had extensive uh, podcast coverage of the teams heading into the season. You know what what we were expecting, what we thought was going to happen. Some teams and players exceeded those expectations. Some did not meet those expectations at all. I honestly, I thought we did a pretty good job, all things considered. But uh, 
Stephen, you have a few, you have some notes here on uh, who exceeded our expectations. So why don't you go ahead and start? Well, I'll, I'll start with who, I guess, who met our expectations. Okay. That, that's a pretty short list. I would say <laughs> it was, you know, maybe three, three and a half teams. Uh, you know, the Liberty, they met our expectations, at least from like a record standpoint. I think maybe kind of what they brought to the table, just in terms of how modern they were going to play, uh, was a little bit more, I guess, modern to use the same word again than we expected. You know, they really kind of, were, were leaps and bounds ahead of the rest of the league just in terms of their, their three-point attempt rate and their uh, shot chart distribution. But they were the worst team in the league, as we kind of expected. And then Seattle and Los Angeles, they were two of the best teams in the league, and we thought yeah. they would be. Uh, so, so no real surprises there. Very happy that, you know, the and this applies to Los Angeles and Seattle, but, but some other teams as well. Very happy that the, the kind of older players or the injury uh, the players coming off injury that we had some questions about, you know, for the most part, uh, at least for the stars, you know, they really kind of delivered the the highest expectations we really could have had for them coming into this season. For sure. For sure. Uh, Candace Parker off the top of your head, right? Yeah. Candace Parker, uh, Brianna Stewart was really kind of who, who I was thinking of uh, towards the, the top of that little rant there, because, you know, she was obviously an MVP last time she played and we weren't really, I mean, an Achilles tear is so tough, right? So oh, yeah. we, we weren't really sure what we were going to get from her, but Parker as well. Um, I mean, Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird, Angel McCautry, like these are all players who we had significant questions about coming into this year. And I guess that's a great way to lead into kind of one of the biggest surprises for me in terms of exceeding their expectations. And that was the Aces, who I thought would be, you know, a solid playoff team, maybe even a little bit worse than that. Um, and we pretty much got the season we thought we were going to get from Asia Wilson, like a, a high usage MVP caliber player on on both ends of the floor. And the periphery players around her are really kind of what drove, I mean, Asia definitely drove their success. I'm not saying that she didn't, but like the difference maker, I think was, you know, the season we got from Angel McCautry, the improvement that we got from Jackie Young, like D-Rob had one of the best seasons of her career to go back to Angel. Like she had the best offensive efficiency of her career by a pretty significant margin. And granted it was in much lower usage, but we saw the, the strides we were hoping to see from Jackie Young, just in terms of like, you know, last year in 2019, she got all the way to the rim and just finished miserably. Like this year, she was able to use her strength and finish inside in a way that I thought was really, really uh, important for her improvement. And, and she improved her two-point shooting by almost like 200 percentage points this season. So uh, really great stuff from them. And they blew my expectations out of the water. Yeah. You know, when heading into the season for Vegas, you know, they lose arguably the best center in the league in Liz Cambage. They lose arguably the best playmaker in, in, in uh, Kelsey Plum. I don't think it was – I think we were right to kind of doubt them. But, yeah, I mean, they, they totally blew my expectations out of, out of the water as well, specifically Angel McCautry. I had major questions as not, – not even like health, her health, yes, but also her ability to play in a more complementary role. And, I mean, she killed it. Like, she was really, really, uh, really solid, uh, efficient, as you said, very efficient. And I think there's something to be said as far as the load management is concerned because, as you said, she did have the the lowest usage of her career, or maybe was it the lowest usage? I'm not sure if it was the lowest usage, but she certainly played the lowest minutes in her career. Like oh, she yeah, was playing 20 minutes a game. Exactly, and that's and that's what I think makes this Aces team even more impressive because you weren't you were getting a lot out of Angel when she was on the floor, but there are a lot of times when she wasn't on the floor, and you were basically relying on Asia Wilson to dominate or their guards to physically dominate like Jackie Young or, or Kayla McBride to make shots or just lean on their defense so often. And that's, you know, they got blown out in the finals by the better team. 
So maybe that strategy isn't isn't as good for constantly playing a team that's one better, but you know, constantly playing the same team over and over again because Connecticut gave them problems as well. But across the across the entire regular season, I mean, you can't really argue with the results they had. Was it a little fluky? I don't know, but they sure earned it, man. I mean, being at the bottom of the league in three point attempt rate, we expected that. But their ability to ability to control the both ends of the game on the free throw line and just be a really good rebounding team as well. They did a lot of things and they really earned that number one overall seed. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, as you were kind of saying, they're a little bit, at least with this roster construction, you know, when, when they really get some of their other players back, uh, I think they're obviously going to be like legitimate title contenders. Sure. And maybe they, they would have given up a, a tougher fight to the storm if, if Derek Hamby was healthy, but you know, they were the second best offense in the league and the second best defense in the league. Like, it's not like they wildly outperformed their their point differential in terms of winning winning close games or what have you. So, you know, they, as you said, they definitely earned getting that top spot. You know, I don't think they were really ever the best team in the league, but they were, you know, definitely one of the top three teams. I mean, we'll never really get to know what LA would have done if they had a healthy Los Angeles Sparks, but they looked a tier below Las Vegas to be sure in the regular season. So, you know, I, I don't really think Vegas would have had too much of a problem to be honest in a five game series with them just from the depth of their roster, from a coaching standpoint, like Bill Lambier, I think is a, a, a much better coach than Derek Fisher. Um, but yeah, Vegas, they were, they were awesome. It was so cool to kind of see how, how well they did this year. Angel exceeding expectations, Asia Wilson, just completely dominating. And I think another team for me, at least that, blew out my expectations was Minnesota. Like I do not understand how this team was a top four seed driven more by their offense than their defense and having an undersized second round pick point guard lead their team, lead a successful team in scoring. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Cheryl Reeve is pretty good at her job, I guess. Uh, But yeah, this Minnesota team, what I thought was cool about this team is that, you know, they really didn't get much out of Sylvia Fowles. She was unfortunately injured for most of the season with that calf they were really able to kind of transform their identity on the fly going into the season. It was more like, okay, who's creating for this team? We had, we had questions about this. We were like, okay, who's creating, who's making threes, you know, can they continue to lean on Sylvia? Can Defisa Collier take that next step? Defisa Collier took that next step, but they were able to kind of transform their identity from one, from a team that was kind of a grinded out team to one that was able to spread you out and, and shoot a lot of threes. You know, they got big contributions from Demiris Dantas. They got, you know, Odyssey Sims back. She did some good things for him. Uh, Crystal Dangerfield, rookie of the year. Uh, from that might be round. the most complimentary thing you say about Odyssey Sims. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, well, let, I'll, okay. I'll be real. She's not one of my favorite players, but the ability to the ability to come back during a bubble season, shortly after giving birth, and continue to play at a professional basketball level is amazing. Oh, for sure. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'll, 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 do, I'll do respect. I'll do props. But yeah, no, Minnesota, you have something about Bridget Carlton? Oh, I mean, she was, she was great. Who the like, Sun used to have. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, the Sun definitely could have used uh, a 3 and D player like her at some point in the season. You know, a, a team desperate for shooting. You know, it is what it is. Uh, there's uh, a whole roster out there of, of former Sun players who Connecticut gave up on too early that are pretty dang good where they are now. But yeah, like you said, Sylvia Fowles played like a third of the season this year, and, and this team still managed to secure a top four seed and win a playoff game. So it's not like it was so fluky. Like they, they did make it to the semifinals. Yeah, well, um, they earned it. They earned it. You know, Rachel Bandum was better than I anticipated. You know, I don't think, I don't really want to say Dantas and Collier were better than I thought because I, I had really, I held those two players in really high regard and 
they, along with Dangerfield, I think were, you know, the, the sort of engines that, that really kind of drove this team to success. And it was really awesome to see Cheryl Reeves coaching job this year. Yeah. Well, to, to me, again, the way Reeve was able to change up their identity on the fly and, and go to more of a three point shooting team is given the circumstances, I'm just, I'm just going to keep going to that, but given the circumstances, you have no rest, you have limited ability to bring in players and I think was it was it Walt Hopkins of the, of the Liberty who said like yeah you know we can't really adjust the way we play because of the schedule. Cheryl Reed was like no 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 we're adjusting the way we play and we're going to keep killing it. So props to the Minnesota Lynx man they were great. I have some more here, but do you have another team you wanted to touch on just in terms of exceeding your expectations? Uh, no, my my only exceeded uh, expectation teams were the Aces and the Lynx. So you can keep going. Okay, I also had Dallas because uh, at least me personally in my preseason evaluation like our our tiers that we released like in our awards prediction podcast way back when like I had Dallas in the dregs along with the Liberty um so you know they were not a a good team by any measure they were uh ninth in net rating but they were a competitive team that was looking at a playoff berth like pretty much until the last day of the season and yeah um for them to be that competitive was pretty far ahead from where I thought they would be this year and they have Arike Gumbawale, who is a terrific offensive creator and can create, you know, they have like a, a guard who can create reliable offense for herself and others. And there are not a ton of those in the WNBA. And, and when you have that, you know, you're, you're going to be okay. They were pretty atrocious defensively. Like I think we, we thought they would be, but seventh in offense is, is pretty respectable. So, uh, and this is a team with just like a lot of solid role players. And, and that's something yeah. that we talked about before the season, but they, they don't have a ton of like, end of the rotation like they shouldn't really be playing in a WNBA rotation players that that they're really throwing out and you know they had some players who I think we thought would have better seasons that didn't like Mariah Jefferson and a student do but you know other than those two players and and Katie Lou still not really being that good of a WNBA player like they had pretty solid players across the board I think you got to give it a shout out to I mean you have her in here but Marina Mabry she was inserted into the starting lineup and, and she played very well yeah, you know, would love a point guard with a little bit more kind of creation chops, but she is a really nice compliment offensively next to Arike Gumbawale, who's going to have the ball in her hands a ton. And to be to have a really credible floor spacer playing point guard alongside Arike is is super valuable. And she was not very good her rookie season. And we had said this numerous times on the podcast, but her her shot, you know, you knew it wasn't going to be as good as bad as it was her rookie season. You knew it was going to start right. falling, and and it definitely did. For me, the question was, uh, can she, you know, be athletic? Can she, is her athleticism enough to, to keep her in there? And yeah, I mean, she played some very meaningful minutes for them and was a major reason why, as you said, they were fighting for a playoff spot until the last, until the last day. So yeah, the wings, I, they, they did take a, I don't think they exceeded my expectation, but they, they were an exciting young team with lots of good young players. Yeah, you know, for sure. Um, and Arike, she she's continues to be one of the most dynamic players in the league. When they when she gets a few of these players to step up, like I can't wait to see Satu Sabali in, in year two. That's gonna be a lot of fun. If they can keep this Marina, Mabry, Arike, Gumbawali backcourt together, that's gonna be cool. If Bella Allery can take that next step, it's gonna be a, a fun team. Yeah, sure. I think at some point we're gonna we're gonna dive into some stuff with Ty Harris, and I'm re- really looking forward to that as well. So, and they also have like a dozen draft picks again. So we're going to see what happens there. And by the way, we're, we are going to do some uh, free agency and maybe draft coming up, but obviously some things need to happen such as college basketball actually starting. So we're going to keep it here for now. 
So just in terms of exceeding expectations, I had some other individual players uh, I wanted to shout out. You know, Diana Trossi was, was I, I mentioned her briefly before, but she was terrible last year. And she came in with a 625 true shooting percentage this year, which is this, uh, I think I had the second highest in her career, but it might've actually been the highest while being like a, a very high usage player, getting to the foul line a ton. You know, Sue Bird, not the same usage as Diana Trossi and not the same availability, you know, only played half the regular season games, um, but of course played every single playoff game and was playing in closing time in, in all of those playoff games and just an insanely efficient offense in her own right uh, while never getting to the line as opposed to Tarasi who really leveraged uh, foul seeking behavior. You know, I tweeted this uh, earlier today, but Sue Bird had more free throw attempts in uh, playoffs than she did in the regular season, which I oh thought was... Um, and Sue Bird was, you know, not a great defender, but obviously, like, didn't kill them on that end either. Like, they were still the best defense in the league. Uh, and you compare that to Diana Taurasi being, you know, maybe the worst defender in, in the WNBA this year, but being such a, an amazing dynamic player at her age where, where it didn't really matter all that much just in terms of her effectiveness. And, you know, Candace Parker, as you mentioned before, like, really being back to the hub of the offense for L.A., being the defensive player of the year. Uh, whether you agree with that pick or not, she was definitely phenomenal at that end of the floor this yes. year. Yes. Um, and then, you know, some of the, you know, not star players that I think need to be shouted out, like Jackie Young, uh, again, was great. Bree Jones, I had major skepticism of uh, before the, the season, and she was as good of as you could have possibly hoped she, she would have been. Um, Brianna Turner was... Uh, really good in the second half of the season. You know, I wasn't really surprised by Kennedy Carter necessarily because I didn't really have any kind of calibration for her, like what to expect because, you know, obviously, as I've mentioned before, I don't really watch college basketball all that often, but she was really good and, and she's a player that I'm really looking forward to kind of watching for years to come in terms of, as I, what I mentioned before, like a guard player who can create reliable offense for herself and her teammates. Like Kennedy Carter is going to be a superstar in this league, in my opinion. Anything else you wanted to add just in terms of like players who exceeded your expectation? I want to go back to Brianna Turner for a second because you say Diana Tarazi was one of the worst defenders in the league. Skylar Diggins-Smith, like she made all WNBA second team despite her team being like 20 points per out of possessions worse with her on the floor, which that's that's an interesting stat to me. Richard Cohen always brings it up on Twitter. Um, She was not really great on defense either, but the way Brianna Turner was really able to step into that starting center position after Brittany Griner left the bubble was really amazing. I mean, she turned from a complimentary paint bound power forward who didn't really do much other than, you know, defend other power forwards to this energetic athletic defensive beast. I mean, the way she was making plays on defense, you know, rebounding outside of her zone. She had a, she had a 20 rebound game. She was, you know, racking up blocks, racking up steals. She was finishing she, and while, while remaining a, an efficient offensive player. You know, she, she, took, she took what her guards gave her. And this is what I really love about, about Bree Turner's game is that she doesn't really need the ball in her hands to be effective on offense. She's not going to score a lot of points. She never will. But she knows how to finish. And she knows how to set herself up to finish, right? And when you, and you're playing on a team with both Skylar and Diana, that's what you need on offense. A, a complementary center who can run the floor, finish passes that she's given, and defend the heck out of the opposition. And Brianna Turner did that for the second half. I was really, really impressed with her. Yeah, and I think maybe this is unfair to say, but I think some people around the league have maybe soured on Brittany Griner a little bit too much for my taste. You know, I think she's still a, a terrific player, uh, did not have a good season this year, but Phoenix just looked a lot better when Brittany Griner left the bubble. Like things 
flowed so much better. Like the guards were a lot more involved in the offense. The floor was more spaced um, because Brianna Turner was playing next to a traditional big less frequently. So, you know, as much as I will defend Griner, most, most instances like Phoenix was undoubtedly better without her after she left. Very interesting. And that's going to be a big story to watch for next year. Big story. Um, one player who I want to, two players actually, who I want to shout out for exceeding expectations. I don't know if you remember, but for our Washington Mystics outlook, we were kind of waffling around, like, would you rather have Elena Coates or Maisha Hines-Allen? Eh, it's six of one, half a dozen of another. We're not really sure on either of them. Uh, Maisha Hines-Allen destroyed my expectations. She was really, really good. And she was kind of, I don't want to say given the starting role because you have to earn it somehow. But, I mean, she stepped into that starting center role and just showed us flashes of her game that we didn't even know she had. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, never mind Elena Coates. Like, the debate on whether she was – going to be better than Tiana Hawkins like not even a question like yeah not even close my Maisha Hines Allen brought an element to her game that I I did not think she had in her as a starting player in my opinion I I don't necessarily think that she deserved the all WNBA nomination that she received but nevertheless like she far exceeded what what we thought from her and you know granted very limited sample size in terms of the short season and a low amount of attempts but 42 percent from three and shooting over 50% from two, like that is a terrific offensive player, especially when you combine, you know, how, how good she is with her face-up game as a spot-up player. Like she, she has the versatility that I, I did not expect from her. Offensive versatility is a good way to put it. I mean, she can hit the glass. She can hit the jumper from anywhere. Um, strong as heck. I mean, she's, she's a real bully down there. She plays so much bigger than what she is. She's only like six foot one, six foot two. Right. But I mean, man, in the, in the post, she's a problem in transition. She's a problem. We saw it in the first game of the year. I'm like, oh, my God, who, who is this player? You know, is this the same player who was sitting at the end of the bench for that championship team? Definitely. I mean, Benajah Laney, who I also want to shout out for exceeding expectations, in my opinion, deserved that most improved player award. But Heinz Allen came in second place. And if she, if it was switched and, and Heinz Allen wanted and Laney came in second place, I wouldn't be upset at all because both of them had terrific seasons. But Benajah Laney... I mean, there's another player who just completely destroyed our expectations. Last year, we were pretty critical of her. She was in the starting lineup for most of the season, was not a threat offensively at all. By most metrics, she was awful offensively. And she really didn't seem to do much, have, have a role outside of being, you know, the defensive stopper, energy player, hustle player, hard nose, whatever you want to call it. All the terms you use to avoid saying she's a poor offensive player. Then she comes out and she has just an amazing offensive season for the dream. And she was the player last year in Indiana that made life difficult for the other offensive players around her because she just was not being guarded at all. Like she was being ignored heavily just about every possession against any kind of decent defense. So yeah, I mean, I remember it was a game kind of early on against the Liberty where like the offense was just completely running through Laney and they were scoring every single time down. And granted that was against the Liberty, but I thought like, is this just a star player now? Like, are we just going to see Benajah Laney pick and rolls where she's diming up her teammates and, and scoring for her own? You know, she, she didn't quite do that against every team, but she was terrific. And one thing I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind us backtracking a little bit with Maisha Hines-Allen and, yeah. and obviously a lot of stuff that will uh, happen in the coming months will will clarify this, but like if Washington expects to get everyone that they expect to get back next season, like, do you think Maisha Hines-Allen will play big minutes or is it just going to go back to her, you know, kind of riding the pine? 
Oh, man. This is something I've been thinking about, too. And it's going to be an interesting uh, free agency for Washington, for sure. If Deladon comes back, if Mieseman comes back, if Sanders comes back. If they re-sign Tina Charles. If they re- oh, I forgot Tina Charles is on the team. Okay. Um, that's tough, dude. I mean, off the top of your head, like who impacts winning basketball more, Maisha Hines-Allen or Latoya Sanders? I think it's Sanders, to be honest with you. I'm still saying Sanders. I'm still saying Sanders because she's so valuable to what they do defensively. Um, And she's she's in her own right. She's a very good offensive player. She's not the creator that Hines-Allen is, but she's a very efficient offensive player, um, especially within that system that they have there. Let's be honest. This year's Mystics team – is not going to be next year. Like this is just kind of a throwaway season for them. It was, it was obvious from the start. Yeah. And this Mystics team needed Maisha Hines Allen way more than they would have needed Latoya Sanders. Like what she yeah. brought to this particular team that didn't have, you know, Natasha cloud. And of course, De- Della Don, but I was thinking more of just in terms of like creating with like off the dribble and stuff like that. They needed a horse. Yeah, yeah exactly. They needed someone who could create some things offensively. So yeah, just thought that was maybe uh, an interesting thing to, to throw out quickly. Not I mean, sheesh, like they might just not bring Hawkins back. You know, like if you have Heinz Allen or Heinz Allen is going to demand, is going to like request a trade, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if she did, you know, request a trade for, to play at a place who can give her more minutes. Yeah, sure. Cause she, cause she earned it. You know, I, I mean, look at the season she had, or I believe Miesemann is a free agent. I don't have the, the charts in front of me, but maybe she stays home this se- next season. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. It's, it's going to be an interesting free agency period for sure. But uh, it raises some questions uh, for them. Honestly, I don't know if I'd, I'd want to be in this position for Washington. You know, this is a tough call. What would you do? Um, I mean, what, I, what would I do that uh, – gosh, I would have to – I mean, what I would do is not bring Tina Charles back. Okay, but they're going to bring Tina Charles back. So what, what, what's your second option? I, I guess I just kind of <laughs> try to get the best uh, available return for Heinz Allen. I, I don't think all of – you know, Deladon's coming back, obviously. I think Sanders is coming back, obviously. Like, I can't imagine both or all three of Heinz Allen – Tina Charles and Emma Miesemann play for this roster next year. Like they just can't. I agree. I mean, even if you want to play some real big lineups with, with Deladon or Heinz Allen at the three, I, I just don't really think from a roster construction standpoint and from a team chemistry standpoint, like I, I don't think they'll go into camp with all, all five of those players on the roster. And from a cap standpoint, I mean, yeah, how, how do they, how do they bring all those players back? Okay. Sure. So yeah, this is, that's, that's definitely going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Um, any other players or teams that exceeded your expectations? Uh, no, I think, I think we're good from, from that end. What about the other end of the spectrum folks who maybe disappointed you, uh, from a team or player standpoint? Okay. So I'm going to let you get to your Indiana fever rant, but I, you said the, the Liberty met your expectations. They actually disappointed me. And here's why. Um, I agree that them shooting a lot of threes was good, but it was almost like they were letting players shoot threes that weren't really good at it. You know, I mean, like a high three-point attempt rate is good, but I don't think it was really playing to their strengths. Maybe it was just Walt Hopkins trying to instill the culture of, you know, advanced metrics or what have you, and that's totally understandable. That roster is going to look a lot different next year. They're going to get players back who can't actually shoot. But, man, like the basketball IQ of this team was just not great. Their assist-turnover ratio on the season, 0.83. That's the worst by any WNBA team since 2012, which is the Phoenix Mercury, who were – blatantly trying to lose games i don't know if the liberty were trying to lose games or if they were just bad but losing sabrina unescu should not totally tank the basketball iq of your team you know uh, it just it just seemed like uh, and, and even from a personnel point like i liked a few of these rookies none of them really met my expectations 
except for maybe Jasmine Jones, but I don't really have I didn't really have high expectations for her in the first place. And even her, I think she might have been a little overrated. Like I would have taken Taya Cooper on the all rookie team over Jasmine Jones, but just my opinion. This the rookie team is horrible. Uh, one other thing I was going to say, just in terms of like that high three-point attempt rate, and this is something that you hit on very often over the course of the season, like they weren't good threes. Like they were just taking threes because they couldn't get any dribble penetration yeah. from anywhere. You know what I mean? Like they were just swing, swing threes. Like they weren't, the defense wasn't collapsing and creating open threes. They were just shooting bad shots from behind the three-point line instead of from exactly. inside them. It's like Kia Nurse was, would, just get the, would just hold the ball for a couple minutes and shoot it. Joyner Holmes would just like take some random three-pointer, which he's never been good at. Like it just wasn't good offense. The statistics might say like the three-point rate, you got to look at the context. And that's another thing, which I think these WNBA broadcasts, if they're going to be integrating advanced stats, they need to look at the context. That's, that's one thing that I think is really important, especially, you know, for pace or whatever. But yeah, I digress. Liberty expected them to be bad, but still disappointing in some facets. Now, Indiana Fever were also disappointing. Um, and you have like, six pages worth of notes on this. So I'll, I'll let you go. I thought this team was going to be pretty good. Like I thought they would be a solid playoff team, you know, high end, maybe the five seed, low end, the seven seed propelled by a very good offense and a defense that was slightly below average probably. And this was not the team we thought we were going to see. Erica Wheeler did not play this season. Lauren Cox, you know, we saw her for less than 200 minutes. Victoria Vivian's only played six games and, you know, that was as I was kind of talking before about all the, the injury plagued players that, you know, we got to see good seasons from, she was the one that I thought of, well, you know, we, we did get at least one kind of disappointment in terms of injury coming back around, but through the first couple of weeks of the season, like this is the team we, we kind of thought they were three and four. They were tied for the best offense in the league. They were tied for the worst defense in the league. Um, but it pretty much all fell apart. They finished 11th in the standings. They were the second team to be eliminated from playoff contention. They, the offense pretty much fell off a cliff, not fell off a cliff, but they progressed. Yeah. They, they finished eighth in offense. They were 12th in defense by a mile. They were 111.8 defensive rating. You know, Marianne Stanley did not really implement the kind of motion, beautiful game offense that we saw from Washington, you know, the, the team that she came from for so many years. So there were a lot of contributing factors to why this was a disappointing season four Indiana, but you know, it kind of all starts with the center, right? The, mm-hmm. the one player that a lot of people thought really had superstar potential uh, on this roster. Of course, you and I are, are a lot higher on Kelsey Mitchell than, than the rest of the world, but we're talking of course about Tierra McCowan, who I thought was bad. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, you know, if she, you look at this, if you look at this defense, uh, sorry to cut you off there, but I need to, I need to hammer this home. Um, their pick and roll defense was atrocious. And it was all because of personnel. As much as I love Kelsey Mitchell, she was bad on defense. Um, as, much, as much as everyone loves Julie Allemand, who had a great rookie season, don't get me wrong, she's a good, exciting young player, she was bad on defense. If you have guards who, can't, who are bad at the point of attack and you have a center who can't move her feet, oh, you're going to have problems. And a team just went at it every single time, and the Fever could just do nothing about it. But, yeah, I mean, McCowan, disappointing. I think I had her on my – preseason second all WNBA team she wasn't even she didn't even come close to that like the numbers and this is where I think the individual numbers might be a little misleading because she was still a really good rebounder she still got to the free throw line a lot but looking at the using the eye test if you will it was pretty easy to see why Indiana couldn't defend especially in space yeah McCowan was more efficient this year than she was last year like her 
offensive rebounding was was even better and she was the best offensive rebounder in the league. You know, she didn't quite get to the free throw line at otherworldly levels like she did last year, but she was still way, way up there in terms of the season. And I felt like every time she was in there, they were getting killed. Like, because, you know, even though the on-off metrics, I think, are a little favorable for her, you know, I think a lot of that stuff, to be honest with you, is just playing alongside the other good players like she only played 100 minutes without Kelsey Mitchell on the floor and, and to, in my opinion Kelsey Mitchell was what was actually driving this team what relative success that they had so as you were saying like the pick and roll defense and just even when she's not in pick and roll just the awareness of kind of what's happening when to come over as a help defender there's there's a long way to go and yeah. McCowan was a player who early on in the season last year I I was not very high on because of obviously all the the concerns about her mobility and her awareness, but I kind of came around when, when you started looking at how dominant she was at the things she was good at. And if she could really just be a presence defensively, you could see the ceiling for this player. And we are further away from that ceiling, I think this year than we were last year. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I don't really think she got better, visibly better at anything. And that's pretty concerning. Um, particularly defensively, because like you said, there's such a long way to go. It's like, she's got this bad combination of being both slow foot and not really that aware or not really that coordinated. And if you can't make up for being slow foot with high basketball IQ or high awareness, or if you can't make up with, if you can't make up for low basketball IQ with, you know, being able to recover just based on athleticism alone, it's a tough sell playing the most important defensive position on the floor, right? So, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a problem. And the thing is, like, you have in your notes, and we need to say this, of course, some context, Erica Wheeler missed the season. Um, their first-round draft pick, Lauren Cox, missed a lot of the season. Uh, Victoria Vivians, who is going to be one of their best three-point shooters, unfortunately, hurt her knee again. She was out for most of the year. I'm not sure any one of those players would have covered for this atrocious defense. No, they wouldn't have, but maybe the offense wouldn't have been eighth if you got good players, like good contributions out of. Yeah, maybe it would have players. gone up to like sixth or something, but would have would it have been enough to get them into the playoffs? I mean, probably not. And the defense was good with Cox on the floor. Huge small sample size issues there, but at least worth noting, right? You know, she yeah. she's seems like she's going to bring something to them defensively. One other thing I wanted to bring up about McCowan, like she. For 36 minutes, like, she committed an extra turnover and a half this year. Like, how is she committing so many turnovers? Like, her fouls are down. They're not offensive fouls. Like, what are you doing to where you're being put in the position to have so many turnovers? Like, you shouldn't be creating with the ball that often. I, I don't know. It, w- would it be, like, getting post-ups in bad situations, not having the awareness to pass the ball out of, out of bad post-ups? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like you said, there's a long way to go as far as both mechanics and IQ. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle. Uh, are we good on this team? Yeah, I think we could uh, probably move on. Um, okay, so, well, let, let me ask you a question. How did the Chicago Sky compare to your expectations? You know, honestly, they met my expectations the whole year, and here's why. Um, going into the season, I expected them to be a contender. I didn't expect them to be on the level of Seattle, and they weren't. Um, but they started, what, like 9-4 and four or something like that, and they, they were playing pretty well. And I thought they were, you know, aside from maybe Diamond and Shields, who – was playing by most accounts injured for most of the season and then left the bubble. Um, aside from that, I don't think I can really knock this team for being disappointing. When they really took that nosedive was after the shields and Ezra Stevens left the bubble. Then like their lack, then they just totally gutted their depth and it gutted their, you know, athleticism, their defense. 
and they just kind of regressed. You know, you can only lean on Courtney Vandersloot to totally carry your offense for so much of the time. And the defense kind of went back to its bad self and they kind of finished the season on a, on a bad stretch. But that was, that was expected. Like when I saw that that roster was when they, when they Stevens and DeShields left, I didn't think they, they could come back from that because they just didn't have the in-house personnel to make up for it. And there was no way of really getting these really good replacement players into the bubble on time. So I think they kind of met my expectations. I know you have them as a disappointment. That's fair too. Yeah, but because of the injuries that you mentioned, like we covered this in our playoff preview episode, like they they started the season off really well and that was kind of the level I was expecting from this team. Like they, Mm -hmm. you know, they had a short roster just in terms of the number of players they had, but they were pretty much bringing in all of their core players. Like there weren't any, there was nobody sitting out this season. Um, Of course, uh, Sidney Colson was, I think, late to the bubble due to, to COVID. But other than that, right, they – oh, and John Lavender got hurt also. But, you know, they they had their their core players that, that were expected to drive success for this team. And then we get to the first season, and Diamond DeShields is coming off the bench for Kalea Copper, and, and that's kind of weird. And then you learn that she's dealing with this knee injury. and But other than that, Steph Dolson is having a pretty tough season, but Cheyenne Parker is just absolutely a monster. Like she was a player that we should have talked about in terms of exceeding expectations. I agree. Yeah. She was great. Probably the second best player on this team this year, uh, in my opinion. And we, we never really got to see the diamond to shields. You know, when we were kind of like a few weeks into this season and Chicago was pretty good and everyone was still playing and the shields was like coming around a little bit, like maybe you're thinking like, okay, if they can just kind of hold on while diamond shields is like getting into it a little bit, like getting back into the rhythm, you know, maybe she'll be starting by the time the playoffs come around. Uh, and then obviously, you know, her and Stevens went down and, and things really, you know, took a nosedive from there, but wanted to talk about the shields a little more because when you look at her numbers, like a lot of it is pretty encouraging. Like she still took about a third of her shots around the rim which if you think, you know, she's dealing with some stuff athletically, maybe she wouldn't be able to get all the way there, but Mm -hmm. that's pretty in line to kind of what we've seen from her career so far. And she finished really, really well in that area as well, you know, way above her career norms. Um, She was not at all impactful as a transition player though. And that's obviously, you know, what, one of the things that made Diamond to Shield so special, like she was last season, a transition offense within herself and she to be able to have a player like that to not only push the pace very frequently, but finish really well in those opportunities for Chicago to even still be such a good offense without that element is, is impressive in its own own right. You know, DeShields, I thought maybe this is kind of dealing with the injury. Like, did you think that she made any kind of meaningful strides as a defender this season? No, no. In and fact, then, I think she, reg- I think she regressed on defense. Yeah. And uh, particularly as like a playmaker, I, I think she's, not always the most attentive defensive player, but she kind of made up for it with her, her athleticism and her, her playmaking ability. Like when she gambled, she really made the most of it because of her transition ability. Um, but for whatever reason, I mean, she was, she just seemed lost out there a lot of the time. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, that was something that we had talked about kind of previously is she's, she's not the best off ball defender, but she'll make those gambles and get out and transition and it's worth it. Um, so other individuals, I guess, because I don't think there were there any other teams that really were major disappointments for you. Not really. Um, like the Atlanta, like the Dream, they kind of they were somewhat disappointing, but I think that could be excused by both injuries and COVID-related absences. They made a lot of moves in the off season, and not a lot of them. 
Like, but Nigel Laney turned out to be their best offense, their best offseason move, and she was signed as like a, a camp player. But um, like Kalani Brown came in late, Glory Johnson came in late. Courtney Williams, I mean, she was okay. I, she felt like she never really – the numbers were probably okay, but, like, I didn't really feel like we were getting the full Courtney Williams experience. But I don't know. I, I wouldn't have had them much higher than, than the 10 seed that they finished at anyway, so that might be unfair. Yeah, I thought they maybe could have got to the 7th or 8th seed coming in. but um, And I think I said coming into the season that if, if Courtney Williams – because when we released our preview pod, like, it – Courtney Williams status was very much still up in the air. And yes. one thing I said was like, well, if they have Courtney Williams, they'll be a playoff team. And if they, they don't, they won't be. And that was not the case because Courtney Williams is not really an impactful player as you were, as you were just saying. Well, um, I mean, they were, they, that came down to like the last day of the season too, didn't it? Or the last couple days of the season. Yeah. They were, they were in the hunt for sure. They weren't atrocious. No, they weren't. Um, but I, I thought it was a little bit of a weird season for, for Courtney Williams. I did not think she was the defender in particular that she was last year with Connecticut, where I thought she was a very underrated defender. I did not, did not think she brought that same intensity this year. And maybe it's, you know, just because she was coming back from COVID, she was playing in a little bit of a lower leverage situation, not competing for a championship. Um, somehow amazingly got to the line even less than she did last season. Um, shot the three-pointer with a little bit more frequency, but did not make them nearly as well as she did last year. You know, she was 16 for 35 last year and eight for 34 this year. So when you're, when you're not shooting many, those few that you miss really kind of add up in sure. terms of driving your overall efficiency down. So I, I thought it was just kind of a little bit of a, a weird year from her. You know, she's overall a pretty low turnover player, and that was way up for her this year. Uh, as well so you know wouldn't kind of like punt on the the Kennedy Carter Courtney Williams Tiffany Hayes trio yet but we'll we'll see how it works out who who should we talk about next in terms of just kind of individual disappointments I mean you have a couple sparks in here that I think are pretty unavoidable Chelsea Gray had a pretty lousy season uh and Neko Gumake was I think playing injured but you had you had, you say she wasn't didn't seem as impactful I totally agree with that like the individual numbers might've been good, but again, this is a case of a player. Like when she was on the floor, it was just like, Oh yeah. I forgot Neko was out there. And you don't say that very often about her. No, a lot of like, uh, and I was wondering kind of how you would feel about her inclusion uh, on this list, but it felt like she was really kind of like relegated as a spot up shooter in a lot of ways. And her, her points per 36 minutes were not down a ton, like 20 last year, 18 this year, but it just felt like she was never really like, and you know, six thirty-six true shooting percentage. That's amazing. Like yeah. that's on par with pretty much any season outside of her like MVP season, which was otherworldly. That you'll see in the WNBA. Like six thirty-six is really, really good. But it just felt like she was not really the same level of player in terms of just like that player that draws like ten non-shooting falls a game that really like chases down loose balls that will go from defending Maya Moore to Sylvia Fowles in a given. Uh, sequence of possessions like it just seemed like she was a, a little bit different than we had seen previously yeah not impact uh, not impactful is is the perfect way of putting it i again i don't think she was healthy i mean she missed some time in there and i think that was pretty indicative of what she was dealing with it reminds me of a couple seasons ago in which she i was she was coming off was it two seasons after her mvp award um maybe it was three but by the end of the season i mean she was just totally broken down and that it kind of reminded me of this season where I mean, like I said, the individual numbers were okay. Like you said, the true shooting percentage was still there, but she was not dominating games. 
like we were used to seeing her dominate games. Um, yeah, I think that was 2018 game. that you're thinking about. 20, uh, yeah, Washington, probably. Yeah, probably. Washington. Yes. Yeah, that was the game against Washington where it was just clear from the jump where it's like, okay, this, this, this team is just so done right yeah. now. Washington just looked like completely different athletically than, than Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah, Again, that's, that's kind of what I'm referring to. That, that's the kind of Nekogumake we saw this season. But yeah, we were just not used to seeing that. Yeah, and you know her her rebounding numbers were low this year. Like I, I wouldn't really put too much into that, just because like Candice Parker was such an absolute monster on the glass. Like I don't think Neka's low individual rebounding numbers really harmed the team at all. But just kind of everything else, like in terms of like her usage was down from like twenty five to closer to twenty. And you know with a player like Neka Gumake, you you wanted a little bit higher than you know under twenty one percent usage. And mm-hmm. yeah, just it was just almost something that I can't even really put my finger on, like a, a little bit too much, just kind of relegated to a corner shooter. And, you know, it's great that she shoots 50% from there this season, but you know, it's, it's 18 attempts. So you got to, and you got to get her under the hoop. Yeah. You got to get her. So under, she's there. such an amazing finisher against players of any size. And she's one of those players that will, like I alluded to before, just put a ton of follows on your team. And mm-hmm. that did not really seem to be the case this season. Chelsea Gray, we got a season very similar to 2019, which I think, in my opinion, is a disappointment. Yeah, definitely. Two seasons ago, you could argue, and I might have actually argued this, even as a Sky fan, that she was the best point guard in the league. Now, I don't think she has much of an argument for that because, ah, I mean, just the shot selection was not good. She just settled for so many long two-pointers. Um, I mean, her three I don't think her three ball was as effective as it was previously either, but just not a very effective scorer or not as an effective scorer as we know she can be. Yeah. I don't know if it's just, and I teams have been doing this for a while now, but maybe she against the bigger players, like she just doesn't have that advantage anymore. Like teams know better than to put a point guard on her uh, with the exception of Connecticut um, (laughs) who can actually can lock her down with, with their point guard. And, you know, another disappointing series, from Chelsea Gray against Connecticut, where uh, Jasmine Thomas, the best perimeter defender in the league, uh, was able to just completely erase her. And I think a lot of that was her own doing to an extent. Like Chelsea Gray just didn't really seem to bring it that game. And this was, you know, the instance where I don't know if this was directed at Chelsea Gray, but Derek Fisher mentioned in the huddle, like, you know, don't think about your overseas commitments too soon. Like we still have a game to play. And, you know, I don't know what, what to really think about that. But well, that's a comment. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, it was uh that's motivational. Yeah, it was something. But yeah, I don't I don't know what it is about Chelsea Gray and, and Ben Dull had something on his podcast where, you know, I think he said something to the extent of uh, and sorry Ben if I'm misrepresenting your words, but I don't think I am. You know, he said something along the lines of like I keep hearing that Chelsea Gray is this elite point guard, this elite player in the league and she keeps continuing to not show me that. So, you know, at some point she she has to be present in in that regard and you know, she completely disappeared in the three-game Sun series last year. She completely disappeared in the one-game elimination this season. And over the course of the regular season, she was just not the player that I, as someone who has said, as you were alluding to before, that this is the best point guard in the league. It's not Courtney Vandersloot. It's Chelsea Gray. Like, I, I have to seriously rethink that consideration because I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's the case at all anymore. Um, but, yeah, that's – you pretty much said it all. I, I think – and also, it's, it's, it's almost like she didn't – uh, I'm I'm dangerously close to meatball territory here, but I'm just going to say it. It almost seemed like she didn't value the basketball as for a full 40 minutes as much as we're used to seeing. Like a lot of behind, you know, we, we all love the no look pass, right? But 
it just seemed like a lot of those passes were unnecessary or forced or the one thing that stands out to me is is when the sky play against the sparks the whole the whole point god controversy the, the, all that mess on twitter and then gray had seven assists and six turnovers or something and people thought she won that battle i don't know i digress but she she made a behind the back pass to nobody just went straight out of bounds it's like w- what are you doing why like this isn't this isn't an and one competition at your local park like this is a professional basketball game you gotta i don't know it's it just didn't seem like she brought she was she just wasn't bringing it that's that's what i gotta say and maybe this is this might be an instance of coaching honestly because Derek fisher is a very lax coach he's a coach who just lets his players you know call their own sets call their own plays whereas under brian agler who is very much a micromanager chelsea gray had the best seasons of her career maybe she just doesn't respond as well to this type of coaching that's an interesting consideration. Um, I'm not sure how to feel about it, but it's it's uh, definitely worth bringing up. Um, I'm just putting it out there. Cause, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, leave it to the Double Down podcast to let a conversation about Chelsea Gray prompt both of us to bring up our own team's point cards. Um, We're not biased, I, I promise you. No. So I thought, you know, one other player I think worth mentioning just in terms of being a disappointment, uh, Brittany Griner. You know, she had some monster games, the one in against Dallas, uh, which Phoenix lost in particular was just she was completely unstoppable but another I thought pretty miserable defensive effort in the games that she played and you know I don't really necessarily blame Brittany Griner for this I think this is more of a Sandy Brondello issue but like the just continue to dump it down into Brittany Griner over and over and over again offense is pretty stale like she's like yeah she's going to score a lot of points on that but there's just a lot of other effective ways to play basketball like involve her in pick and roll more like when you're involving her in pick and roll more the other players are, are more involved as well because they can you know they're more likely to, to catch passes and be able to attack a closeout I mean is it fair to say Grinder's season was a disappointment yeah right extremely disappointing I mean she played well below what she was capable of and then she left you know it, re- regarding your point to different offense how about some high low she's six foot nine she can see over everybody yeah, sure. And that yeah. was something they had, I thought, pretty good success with last year with Turner, and we, we didn't really see any of that this year. Yeah, very strange. Very strange season from Griner. Um, I will continue to maintain that having a poor rebounder at center is a bad thing. Um, Brittany Griner, you know, she's had her – I feel like in previous seasons, you know, she's been able to at least compensate for her poor rebounding by being an elite offensive player. But this season, that just wasn't the case. And even more than usual, like, her defense is just lazy. I, I don't want to – I don't like coming at players with that, you know, that descriptor too often, but man, you know, I'm continu- continuing to see dumb fouls, continuing to see her like give up on plays or when, or when she gets beat, she just hacks people. Like just be oh, straight I'm, up. Like, I'm, I'm glad sorry. you brought that up because Brittany Griner has to have some of the, the dumbest fouls of any star player in the league. Like, it's she, horrible. You will give some just absolutely head scratchers in terms of, I mean, aside from, you know, Dewana Bonner in a playoff series against the aces, like Griner, is just like, what are you doing? Like, that's that's the foul you're going to give for your fifth foul? Like, you're just going to elbow somebody on the way by when you are already in foul trouble? Like, It's a situation too, right? Yeah, yeah it's commonplace yeah. for Brittany Griner. And she's in what, like her seventh, eighth season in the league now, and she's still doing that? I don't know, man. I Disappointing, for sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, anyone else you want to touch on? You know, I wanted to say Natasha Howard, although I, I, I did think she did pick it up, like in the second half of the season, and in the finals, she was amazing. So it's like... All's well that ends well, right? Yeah, I think if maybe Seattle disappointed, there would be some some finger pointing to her. But uh, but that reminds me of a, a player that I think you know maybe didn't exceed my expectations. But it was nice to see uh, a great bounce back from Jewel Lloyd. 
Um, it was. She she was she was awesome. We we should have talked about her more early on, but we should have. We love Juloid on this podcast. We um, we do love Juloid on this podcast, and we're definitely Team Jewel over Team uh, Muffin McGraw. Um, but anyway, <laughs> definitely always twenty four seven. Did did we learn anything in particular about this season? Anything? Any like kind of big takeaways just from you know whether it be bubble related or basketball related. So my major thing, well, I don't know if this is something that I learned, but it's something that I now have greater respect for, would just be the, the task that coaches have between managing minutes versus teams staying sharp. This was something that I think everyone had a problem with because of this condensed schedule and teams coming in at various levels of fitness, various levels of conditioning. The Connecticut Sun in particular come to mind when I think of this, but this, the Sun, who I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to keep using as an example they came into the season, looked dead tired. And I'm, I'm like, what the heck is Kurt Miller doing? You got to play your bench more. Uh, Alyssa Thomas has no legs. Dewana Bonner has no legs. They're actually coming out and saying to the media, hey, we have no legs. That's why we're losing. It's like, well, okay. And he just continues to play them. But then towards the end of the season, they're playing their best basketball and he's still playing them. So it's like, well, maybe that's, maybe there's more to it than just, hey, you got to play your bench more. You got to let them rest. Maybe there's more to it. I don't know. Maybe you know, it's a matter it, of, I was going to say, maybe it's just a matter of uh, if they play more, they get into better shape. I'm not an athletic trainer. I'm not a doctor. I, I, I'm not good with this, this sort of thing. But it really gave me an appreciation of how tough these coaches' jobs are in a condition like this where you're managing, where you're trying to win games because the games are much more meaningful when it's a 22-game season rather than a 34-game season. But at the same time, you're playing every other day. You have to worry about depth. You have to worry about nagging injuries and health. And you have to look down the road. Like, for instance, Seattle, they had no problem resting Subaru to Brianna Stewart. Nagging the injury, okay, hey, take a few weeks off. You know, it's like, whatever. We know we're going to win the championship anyway, right? But for every other team, it was very interesting to see the minutes play out and the rotations play out. You know, the, the Sun, the Sparks, I thought was interesting. The Mystics were interesting. The Mercury, you know, two teams that were totally depleted, but a couple of their players still couldn't get onto the floor. It really taught me a lot about you know how much these coaches have to be juggling on a consistent basis and one one thing to kind of touch on the high minute threshold uh thing that you were just talking about i think this was maybe the first time i had heard it brought up this way last year in the the finals between washington and connecticut you know that was a situation where these teams which obviously washington won and they they were a lot better as a team in my opinion than connecticut was but I want to say maybe it was Rebecca Lobo because I remember it being brought up on a broadcast, but she had mentioned like Connecticut's used to playing 35 plus minutes a game. Like this Washington team does not really like push their starters heavy minutes. So Hmm. when they are being pushed towards heavy minutes for the first time, like their bodies may not be used to that. Whereas, you know, Alyssa Thomas has to play 38 minutes a game or they just get completely destroyed. That's interesting. Um, Yeah. So from my perspective, I was always someone who thought, you know, rest, 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 like keep these players' bodies in as good a condition as you can. The regular season is not that important, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there is a validity to the the point where like, if you're used to playing 40 minutes a game, playing 40 minutes a game isn't going to be as challenging as if you're used to playing 27 minutes a game and then you have mm-hmm. to go really push it to the, the brink. But great uh, point. Yeah. So anything else just in terms of like uh, season lessons, I, I guess? Uh, not for me, but you've got a pretty interesting point, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think one thing that we learned, and maybe we're learning it more from other leagues' failures than than the WNBA's success, is that, you know, we are in a pandemic. Like, bubbles work. Bubbles work. Other other leagues and other sports organizations uh, are going through 
um, some less than ideal situations with a lot of players testing positive and games are being canceled and pushed back indefinitely and league officials and player unions didn't want to play in a bubble and the WNBA decided to play in a bubble and it was a great decision, I think. Uh, something that Eric was skeptical about, something I was skeptical about. You know, we did not think this was a good idea and it worked out great. Uh, I mean, I'm sure the players are happy to be gone and back to their normal lives, but yeah. basketball players are going to play basketball either way, most likely. Like we see players, you know, during, before the the hiatus returned in the NBA, you, you know, you saw players uh, posting videos, playing in full gyms, like at the height of uh, COVID in a lot of areas. So you know, to do it in this safe environment was, I think, a, a major success, as you had mentioned earlier in the show. It really paid off. And I think it would just be best after all this back and forth to end on a high note. The bubble was a success. Um, all kudos to the WNBA, the Players Union, the officials, the commissioner, Kathy Engelbert. Just really great stuff all around. I'm really, really happy that the season ended without anyone getting, you know, without anyone contracting COVID or getting otherwise sick. The, the condensed schedule, I mean, was a necessary evil, but we got a heck of a season out of it. So big thanks, big ups to everyone involved. And um, yeah, I mean, it does, it, I am kind of concerned about the upcoming college basketball season because college basketball, it's a significantly harder to bubble with all these, uh, you know, college students doing other things besides basketball, besides playing basketball. So uh, I'm also very concerned about these players playing in their, European leagues and other overseas leagues that, you, uh, you know, um, <laughs> we live in the United States, a country that is not handling the pandemic very well. I don't think it's outrageous to say that a lot of other countries are handling it better. And, you know, well, let me say this. I think Israel went on, Israel has a very prominent women's basketball league over there. They did lock down for another month or so. So that league actually got postponed. But right now there are other leagues going um, like Turkey, for instance, I believe, France, Italy, Russia, something or other, they're still, they're going right now. And I don't think I haven't heard any problems. So, I mean, it is always a concern when the players go overseas because, you know, is it dangerous? Are they not going to get paid? Which happens? I mean, that really sucks, but it's, a, I, I get your concern, but it's, it's like a case by case basis, you know, like which countries are handling it better, which countries are not handling it. Well, you kind of got to look like who's playing in China right now who's playing in Italy right now, who's playing in Russia, right? Who's playing in Turkey. You got to look at each of those countries on a, on a case by case basis, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. So you wanted to end it on a, a positive note and we managed to somehow not do that. Ah. Okay. Well, <laughs> the overall impression was that the WNBA season rocked and we had a great time doing it. Here, here's, here, here's one thing that I enjoyed. I enjoyed doing the podcast. Oh, me too. Thank you. Awesome. I'm, awesome. I'm, I'm very happy to be doing this. Uh, and, uh, thank and you all for listening. Yeah, exactly. Thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, never fear, we will continue doing the podcast during the off season. Um, you want to give a, like a sneak preview of what we got planned? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so I think next week, uh, as we teased last week, we'll be doing our award show. I think after that, we'll probably do a free agency preview. You know, there's, there's going to be some, some different things. Maybe we'll, we'll go back to watching some old games, do some redrafts. Uh, one thing, uh, I talked to Eric about doing was maybe taking like a look specifically about the this past year's rookie point guards and, and kind of how they did in their season, uh, maybe excluding, you know, the the dead bang superstars, you know, I kind of wanted to focus on more more of that second tier of point guard in there. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll continue to bring you content each week. Uh, you know, maybe we'll recharge our batteries once or twice here or there, but we plan on 
still being here over the course of the off season. Yeah. Recharging your batteries. Uh, I just want to say this um, is extremely important. If, if anybody listening is at all feeling down or, or bad, you know, please take time to yourself. That's especially, especially during these uncertain and unfortunate times. That's, it's very important. You need to take care of yourself above anything else. So please don't hesitate to do that. But on that note, if you have any ideas for us, we'd love to hear it. Hit us up on Twitter at double down WNBA, our personal accounts at Nemchuk E or at Trinkwald. Give us some feedback, good or bad. We'd love to hear it. We will interact with you at some point in the future. Can't tell you when, but it will happen. If you want to listen, if you want to subscribe, you know, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Play. We're on Spotify. Uh, we'd love to hear your, your comments. Leave a review. One star, five star, doesn't matter. Preferably five star, but subscribe for future content. I believe I've hit on all the, all the end of show. Am I missing anything? No, I think, I think that's good. Okay. All right. Well, as always... Eric Nemchak and Stephen Trinkwald, Double Down WNBA. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy and stay safe, and we will see you next time.